Well, good morning, church. My name's Kyle. I am one of the pastors here, and we are continuing on our Left on Red series. But before we jump into this week's message, I want to go back two weeks to 1 Thessalonians, because in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8, there's this beautiful verse, and it says, We loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our very lives as well. And that's a verse Chelsea and I have felt from day one of joining FAC. We love this place. We love this community so much. It's a delight to not only share the gospel, but our lives as well. And so as a nod to that, I want to share some Trig Life news with you all. On July 24th, Chelsea and I welcomed Samuel Francis Trigg to the world. And uh, he's here. Uh, his first Sunday uh, at FAC. He's just been a delight and such a gift of grace. Um, you know, really what we're doing, we're doing our best to ensure there's always a place for you to volunteer in our kids' ministry. <laughs> All right? There's always, you are always needed. And uh, more than one way to grow a church, to reach everyone for Jesus, right? Um, it's just been a, a tremendous few weeks uh, for our family, and I'm delighted to share that with all of you. All right, um, that was First Thessalonians. This week is First, T- First Timothy. It's an amazing letter. It's a complex letter. It's a compact letter. And there is uh, so much for us to look at, this, at this book that has caused no small amount of conflict and confusion in the church throughout the years. So let's jump in. It starts like this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. To Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. For this whole series, every single opening has been the exact same except there's a massive change in that opening. Did anybody catch it? So far throughout this series, every single letter has been written to an entire church community, to the church in Corinth, to the holy ones in Rome, to the people in Christ Jesus at Philippi. And yet this letter is written to Timothy. It's written to one person instead of to the entire church Community. So this is the difference between reading someone's public address, someone's public speech, and reading through their text messages. Now both are hopefully authentic expressions of the one sending the message, but there's different nuances. And you read them differently. Now 1 Timothy is every bit as authoritative as God's word for our lives, every bit as true, every bit as relevant. But we should just be aware of, of reading this in, in a, with that lens, aware that this was written to Timothy, who is involved in a church instead of to the entire church. So who was Timothy? Timothy was a younger man that Paul mentored, and he was one of Paul's most trusted ministry partners. Paul met his mom and his grandma on his first missions trip. And from then on, Paul began this mentoring relationship with Timothy. And Paul heard that the church in Ephesus was in crisis. 
Paul heard that they were in some trouble, that there were some false teachers who had um, to the church in Ephesus. And they, they started to teach all kinds of weird and wild and wacky things. And these false teachers teaching to the church in Ephesus led to all kinds <clears throat> of dysfunctional living. And Paul was so distraught. He's like, Timothy, I am sending you as my ambassador to go to Ephesus to sort the church out. And after sending Timothy to the church, Paul wrote this letter to Timothy, my true son in the faith, reminding him of the the things that he was to do and reminding him of how he was to do these things. And so this is how Paul starts his writing to Timothy. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So Paul's writing to Timothy. Paul and Timothy both knew this church really, really well. We know that Paul lived in Ephesus for about two years. Timothy was living there now. So when Paul writes to Timothy, you need to go and command certain people. That's kind of like a wink, wink. You know exactly who I'm talking about. You gotta go fix those people out. You know what they're teaching? You gotta command them to sort this out. And, and those folks, these certain people with their false teaching, they were, they were hyper-focusing, hyper-fixated on, on all of these weird things that were being, um, causing distractions and were, were dividing the church. Things like ancient genealogies and the intricacies of these and what they mean, focusing on weird food laws and, and, and looking at these, these dimensions of the law and speculating and obsessing over the what-ifs and the who's and, the, and all of these things and all of this weird teaching ultimately resulted in the fragmentation and the division and chaos within the church. These false teachers were causing so much damage by focusing on the wrong thing. And their wrong teaching led to wrong living. Now for us, most of us, we don't hyperfixate on ancient genealogies. So we read 1 Timothy and we're like, all right, perfect. Don't, don't focus on ancient genealogies. You got it. Because ancient genealogies don't really cause much division in the world today. But what if we read this as saying, stop focusing on gossip, on other people's relationships. Stop focusing on conspiracy theories or hoaxes or social media or the future. Stop focusing on anything that causes division among you. Anything that causes chaos among you that doesn't advance God's work. Stop, stop talking about that. Now, when we look at it that way, that comes a little bit closer to home, doesn't it? Because if the last few years have shown us anything It's that we as a society are very good at focusing on the things that divide us. And Paul's saying to Timothy, 
command them. Stop focusing on that. It's a distraction. So what should we focus on? Paul said in verse 5, he says, the goal of this command, the tell us of this letter, the point of all of this is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Now, I would imagine if most of us went around and talked to the people in our world, if we asked most of the people in this room, how do you feel? Agree or disagree? The goal of this experience on this ball of of earth, the goal of this is love. Now, most of us would be like, yeah, that checks out. Most of our world would be like, yeah, that makes sense. But how do we know if we're living a life of love? And what does it actually mean to live a life of authentic love? How do we know if we're doing that the right kinds of ways? Because that's where I think people start to get confused. And all different kinds of people have all different kinds of ideas about what it means to live a life of love. And in verse 5, Paul says the goal of this command is love. Then he says, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Which means the goal of our lives is love. So like the vehicle that should carry us around this world is love, but the engine that propels it forward is a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So we need to take seriously, what does that mean? What, is, what, what does a, a, a pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith mean? I like to imagine Timothy getting this letter so many years ago. He's in Ephesus, one of the most influential ancient cities of the world. Just down the road is the great temple of Artemis, an ancient wonder of the world now. This powerhouse of a city where the church is seen as in opposition to the dominant culture. Just a few years ago, Paul was arrested and dragged through the theater. All these gods all over the city all these temples, and and Timothy gets this letter as he's trying to take care of this fledgling little conflict-ridden church. And it says, I command you to go and teach those people. Now, we don't know much about Timothy, but we know he was young. We know he he was coming into Ephesus. And imagine Timothy, you know, reading this. I have to go command these people this? Like, what a daunting and intimidating task that would be. That's a hard call by any metric. But today, I think engaging with 1 Timothy for each and every one of us is every bit as daunting, hard, intimidating, and difficult. If we want to engage with this letter and not leave it on read, it's every bit as challenging as what Timothy first had to do. Because this letter forces us to look at the inner parts of our lives and ask ourselves, do I have a pure heart? Do I have a good conscience? Am I holding on to a sincere faith? I read this letter every day for weeks. And the more I read it, the more I engaged with it, the more it fundamentally challenged everything in my life. 
because it just forces us to examine the parts of our lives that we don't often slow down enough to examine. The secret places of our lives, the part that you know is there that no one else knows. The parts that no one else can see. What happens when that part of our heart is exposed, is convicted, is challenged? What story do you tell yourself when your conscience is convicted? When something starts to, when you feel that conviction, a pure heart or a good conscience, what, do you, what story do you tell yourself? Do you think it's because you're bad? Do you think it's because you're in trouble? Or do you try and just say, yeah, that's not actually happening. That's just weird. I don't know what that's about. And you just try and brush it aside or shove it down deeper. Because when conviction comes our way, every single one of us has two options. We can respond with courage or we can choose to ignore. And that's it. Paul says it this way. Holding on to faith and a good conscience, option one, or you can reject it, which some have done, and so have suffered shipwreck with regard to the faith. When we are convicted of whatever it may be, we can choose to respond or we can choose to slowly head towards a shipwrecked faith. And now for us, when we read about a shipwrecked faith, that's like a good metaphor. We understand that imagery. But when Paul's writing this letter in the back of his mind, he's remembering when he was shipwrecked himself. He's like, it's a slow process. You're heading towards destruction. It's, it's, you know which direction you're heading because Paul actually was shipwrecked. We read about it in Acts 27. So he's using this example and he's like, don't shipwreck your faith. When conviction comes, we can choose to hold on to faith. We can respond with courage or we can brush it aside. We can ignore and we can slowly be malformed which eventually results in a shipwrecked faith. And time and time again, I've chosen and I've seen people when convicted, choosing to harden their hearts and ignoring it and ending up in places and circumstances and situations they never dreamt they would be in. Let's not let that be us. Let's respond to the gentle voice of God. It may be costly. It may mean throwing things overboard. It may be hard and vulnerable. But it also means not having a shipwrecked life. So how do we know this morning? If we're not dulling our conscience, if we are responding if we are living with a pure heart, good conscience, and a sincere faith. Well, look at how Paul talks about himself. He writes about himself and he says, I was the chief of sinners, the foremost sinner. First Timothy is one of the last letters Paul writes. And at the very end of his, as he's coming to the end of his journey, he's never been more aware of just how unlike Jesus he has been in his life. He's also never been more aware of how loved he is. But the one thing we recognize is after talking about these things, this, this, this pathway to love, 
he is able to tell the absolute truth about himself. He's able to tell the vulnerable, the vulnerable parts of his life with courage. Are you able to tell the truth about yourself in all the details and dimensions of your life? One of the best ways we know we're living lives with a clear conscience and a pure heart is that there are no secrets in our life. We can tell the truth about ourselves. When you examine your hearts with those you love, those you trust, what version of yourself are you telling? Are you able to stand free, grounded? You know, when someone's like, hey, I saw what you did last week, we need to talk. You're like, okay, great. Yeah, what do you want to talk about? Or we need to talk in the morning. Okay. Because you're not hiding anything. Nothing to be afraid of. There's nothing to be caught from. You can just tell the truth. What version of your life are you telling? I saw this great quote from Tim Keller this week that said, you could be 100 times worse than you are right now and your sins would still be no match for the mercy of Jesus. No match, not even close. Whatever, you, in, in the back of your mind, when you, whenever you're convicted, you're like, oh man, okay. Like whenever that goes on, you can multiply that by 100 and it's still not even a match for the mercy and the grace and the love that Jesus has for you. And that's the hallmark of a sincere faith. You know who Jesus is. You know that he really came. You know that he really died. You know that he really rose again. And you know that no matter what, he really, really loves you. And he's got mercy for you today and every day. And he's got immense patience, profound grace. And you know that anyone who believes in him will re receive eternal life, both qualitatively and quantitatively. Eternal life here and now in your life and for all of time. Do you know that to be your experience do you know that when conviction comes, it's not because of how bad you are, but because of how loved you are? That he's not trying to get something from you, but he's trying to give something back to you. He's trying to restore the dignity of your humanity. Because he loves you so much. And he wants you to be free. And holding on to a sincere faith is knowing that you know that you know that Jesus loves you. And nothing can separate you from that love. 
And in the same way, we can trace, trace the goal of this command is love, which is a sincere heart, or a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. We can also go the other way, where when we understand and we have a sincere faith in the power and presence and person of Jesus, we can then have the courage to respond, to have a good conscience. We can have the courage to take the next step towards purity of heart, because he's working on us, and we're joining him in that. And then we can just be free to show up and love the people around us. Nothing to gain, everything to give. The goal of all of this is love. And it's from that vantage point that Paul starts to go into the particular nuances of the church in Ephesus. And where he starts to coach Timothy on how to address the realities of the church from love. And so this part where, where Paul's coaching Timothy on how to address his church is found in 1 Timothy chapters 2 and 3. Now chapters 2 and 3 are some of the most controversial, complex, and um, difficult sections in the Bible to read. These two chapters have caused so much division, so much difficulty, and so much challenge in the church over the last few centuries. And I would guess there are people in the room right now, this very moment, that have the most sincere faith, pure heart, good conscience. There's, there's people in this room that would read this passage radically differently. First Timothy 2 and 3 are, one of those, are some of those passages that just makes it impossible to say the Bible is clear. Because when you read through this, there's stuff that we have to think through intentionally and deeply. I wish I had time and space to look at every part of these commands. You might be like, I'm glad you don't. Um, I wish I could. But uh, in chapter two, Paul starts to address specific problems in the church. And so rather than look at everything, I figured, why don't I just take the most complicated one and the most controversial one and the one that could cause the most emails this week and just run straight at that one. All right. So we're going to just go straight, straight to the center. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8 says this, Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. And everyone's like, where's the complication? I don't know. <laughs> what are you talking about, controversial, Kyle? <laughs> he starts by saying this. Church, you're fighting over the minutia and speculations of things that don't really matter. So men, stop fighting, lift your hands up, have a prayer meeting. Stop fighting, start praying. God wants to save the entire world and you're getting drawn down into these debates that is just dividing you. Stop fighting. 
pray. Prayer is the thing that keeps the main thing the main thing. Don't get distracted. The world's at stake. Stop fighting each other. Pray. Then he turns to the women and he says, Women, stop treating church like a fashion runway. This is not the place to flaunt your wealth and to shame everyone in your midst that can't afford to wear what you're wearing. Stop bragging and showing off what you got. Showing off your status. When we gather, when we show up together, it's to worship, not to flex on other people. This is a house of worship and prayer, not Milan or New York Fashion Week. Let's worship together. Let's pray together. Stop shaming those who can't do what you're doing around you. Then he says, a woman, a woman needs to stop usurping the authority in the house. You need to come under the authority of Timothy. You can no longer teach there. Now we can read 1 Timothy 2 and be like, Bible's clear. Men, you want to pray? You better have your hands up. Don't send me any angry email unless your hands are up. Women, pearls, you wish. No more pearls. Sorry. Gold, I don't know what you're going to do with your wedding rings. Women aren't to teach. You're saved through childbearing. You need to learn quietness and submission. Easy. Case closed. But if we hold on to that, then I wonder why do we see elsewhere in the Bible a different message being communicated? Acts chapter 2 says that the Spirit is poured out upon men and women, and they will prophesy. And 1 Corinthians says the crown jewel of the gathering is prophesying. And 1 Corinthians defines prophesying as what? the teaching and edification of the church. The teaching and edification gift has been poured out on men and women to build up the church. And then in 1 Corinthians, Paul also says, when the women prophesy in the gathering, this is how they're to do it. He's teaching and coaching the women on how they were to teach in the church gathering. Why do we see elsewhere in Paul's life and ministry him allowing women to be involved in teaching in other offices within the church? A full reading of Paul's writing shows him instructing women on how to edify and speak into and teach the church in Corinth. We see Paul calling Junia outstanding among the apostles. We see Prisca teaching Apollos, and Apollos was one of the hotshot teachers, and Prisca's teaching him like a seminary professor. It just brings up the question, if we think 1 Timothy chapter 2 is a universal prohibition on all women for all of time in all places, then why are there other places where we see women teaching? We just have to answer that question. 
Now we also have to answer the question, Paul very clearly says in 1 Timothy 2, a woman cannot teach. And so we have to be honest about that as well. We have to look at what is going on to Timothy's church in Ephesus. What's happening there that Paul is saying that? It's really interesting that Paul links the woman not being able to teach to Eve being deceived. Because Paul does that one other time in all of his letters, and it's in 2 Corinthians. And in that context, the linking to Eve being deceived was also about some false teachers. When there's false teaching, Paul links it to Eve being deceived. There was something going on very specifically in the church in Ephesus where Paul was saying, that woman, a woman cannot teach. The women that are treating it like a fashion show, the false teachers, they can no longer teach unless they come under your authority and are taught and are formed in the way of Jesus. There's so many fun things here, like the childbearing passage, super interesting. We don't have time. I wish we did. Um, This is a great book. Dr. Nijay Gupta, Tell Her Story. Great book. It provides a lot of really interesting information on this. Um, Hopefully another day we can get into some of those other verses. After talking about some of the particular situations that were going on in this church, though, Paul turns his attention to Timothy. And in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, we read this. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young. Timothy, set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Now that is true for Timothy. That was true for Timothy, and it is still true for us today. So if you are young and you're in the room or if you're online, this is for you. This next section is for you, and I hope you can hear me clearly. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young. Don't let anyone here look down on you because you're young. Set an example for us. I'm begging you, set an example for us in how you live. You have a vital place in this community here and now, not just someday, but now. And I want to give my life to ensuring that FAC continues and increasingly becomes a place where you know you are needed and where you are empowered to reach this world for Jesus. Don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. And this matters to me because it's personal for me. I was nine years old when I felt the Lord call me to be a pastor. I was 12 years old when I was first put into church leadership. Started leading worship at 14. Started preaching at 17. Licensed pastor at 22. I have said this verse to myself over and over again, and I just want every person here who's young to just know you are valued and needed. I want to learn from you. This is your place. And if there's something within you, you're like, I'm meant to do this. Or if you've ever thought, I guess I got to wait till I'm older to be up there or to be involved in that ministry. Or if you've ever thought, man, I I didn't like that. I got ideas. 
Those are all ways in which the Lord can stir in your heart to lead us as a community. Don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. Because you're young, set an example for us. There's no such thing as a junior Holy Spirit. There's no such thing as junior spiritual gifts. We need you. We need you. If we want to be the church God is calling us to be, we need everyone on board. Everyone. In this letter, there's this trajectory. At the beginning, Paul says, remember the calling. Here's the command I have given you. And then in the middle, it's the present. Here's the things you need to sort out. And then at the end, he goes to the future. Here's how your life needs to look together. And here's how Paul says it. You need to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. And then he says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good. Be rich in good deeds. Be generous and willing to share. Again, I imagine Timothy getting this letter. All right, Sunday's coming. I guess I got my sermon. I command you, be rich in good deeds. Don't put your hope in your wealth. Put your hope in God. That's the word of the Lord. And then it goes down. You know, to a church that was full of chaos and complexity, Timothy was sent to remind them that the character of their lives is to be one of generosity and good deeds. That's the mark of, a, of love. Generosity. And so if we take a step back from 1 Timothy, it's packed with all kinds of good stuff, all kinds of chaos, all kinds of complexity, all kinds of infighting, division, power struggles, a young leader given the chance by an older seasoned veteran. But we can boil it all down to this one thought. What a church believes will shape how it lives in the city. What a church believes will shape how it lives in the city. That church was listening to all kinds of false teaching, which resulted in all kinds of misaligned lives. Which means we will become what we tolerate. We will become what we listen to. We become what we believe. Which means our belief system needs to be continually reformed and realigned with Jesus through the scriptures. The messaging of this world, and I love our world so much, but the messaging of this world is designed to adjust our beliefs one micro degree at a time. And if we aren't careful and cautious and wise and discerning, we will find ourselves being taken down a path one micro degree at a time where our beliefs, our worldview, and our faith are slowly being malformed. 
We must be paying attention to our lives and to what we believe. 1 Timothy 4.16 has long been a, a, a continued message that I ponder and examine in my life. And, and it says, watch your life and your doctrine closely. Because our lives are a direct reflection of the things that we believe to be most true of this world. Any action, any choice, any habit, anything that we, uh, any choice that we make, it's direct manifestation of what we believe to be true. And if we think I won't get caught, or if we think everyone's doing it, or if we think it doesn't matter that much, or if we think this world is all there is that's going to affect how we live. And it's going to affect how we respond when challenges come our way, when conviction comes our way. What a church believes will shape how it lives in the city. And what a church believes is really just what we believe. And what we believe will shape how we live life together. And what we believe is really just the sum total of what you believe. And you believe. And you believe which is why we need to watch our lives and our doctrine closely. So I don't want to leave this letter unread this morning. I want us to respond. And I believe that the Lord loves to speak to his people. And I believe he wants to speak to us this morning. And so I want to have that shape how we gather and to have an opportunity for us to respond. So will you pray with me? Holy Spirit, come. Come. To every one of us now. <clears throat> you are welcome here. In totality, you have freedom here. It's your house. So speak. Us. Help us see if we're living a life of love. Holy Spirit, will you reveal to us if there's areas in our lives where we do not have a pure heart? Holy Spirit, reveal to us if there are areas in our conscience that you are wanting to restore our humanity. Holy Spirit, reveal to us if we're holding on with a sincere faith. And I just ask that you do what you love to do and just show us how much Jesus loves us. Anew, afresh, again, for the first time. God, is there any area in our lives that we need to watch a little more closely or our doctrine? Is there a secret place, secret thought, secret habit that you want to bring to the surface to heal, to touch, to have us respond? <clears throat>
Is there an area in our lives where we're holding back and you're asking us to be generous? Oh, show us. For the sake of our King and the sake of his kingdom, I ask in Jesus' name, amen. The goal of all of this is love. From a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. A sincere faith in the Jesus that loves you more than you could ever know or imagine. Who loves to pour his mercy upon you. And may that be so more and more in our lives today and for all our days. God's grace be with you all.